Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. This episode features Victoria Hewson, Head of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Victoria is a highly respected lawyer with many years of experience in the fields of technology and financial services. Over recent years, she's published numerous influential papers on trade, regulatory policy and Brexit. In this interview, Victoria discusses, ahead of the COP26 summit in November, her latest IEA paper in which she assesses the government's net zero agenda. Now, Victoria, you've been looking closely at this net zero agenda run by the government. There's always been a cost associated with net zero, hasn't there, that the the media and the political class just accepts. Tell us why you think that cost is not correct. Well, I think for a start, the numbers we're talking about are so huge that it's actually very hard for most people to to get their heads around it and conceptualise it at all. So, for example, a common figure that gets used and is certainly favoured by the government when they pass net zero into law was £50 billion a year. Till 2050. Up to 2050. Now, that figure in itself isn't a particularly honest representation of what the Committee on Climate Change uh, actually said. But let's let's just accept for the moment that the government put out this 50 billion. That's more year. than we just spend on defence every year. It's it's getting on for what we spend on schools every year. It's quite a big number, isn't it? 50 billion pounds well, a year. Well, you often see it also represented in terms of percentage of GDP, one to two percent of GDP. That's quite a lot, yeah. uh, really, in terms of cost and also the opportunity cost of what we're not doing with that kind of uh, investment. And, of course, when, when you put it into into gross figures, we're, we're in the trillions here. So between yeah. now and 2050... When you add up those 50 billions every year... We're, we're up to one and a half, one point seven trillion. Now, some analysts think even that is a massive underestimate and wildly over-optimistic. And some... Uh, some economists have calculated figures that are double that, closer to three trillion. And the interesting thing here is that the the government, the Treasury, has really been quite obfuscatory about this. Um, it took freedom of information requests in the last year or so to reveal that they plumped on the fifty billion figure because that figure from the Climate Change Committee was lower than their own modelling, which came out at 70 billion. I mean, again, we're just talking tens of billions here. It, it feels like an unreal conversation in some ways. But the, the, the Treasury deliberately chose to uh, focus on the 50 billion because it was lower than the 70 billion figure that they had come up with. Then it emerged that the Climate Change Committee's calculations, which had supposedly produced this 50 billion figure, were... Um, not disclosed, they weren't available to the Treasury or anyone else to check and no, interrogate. No methodology of how they got to their 50 and billion again, number. it took a Freedom of Information request to try and get them to publish their workings, to show their workings. And they resisted this all the way through appeals to the courts. So it's a very, very untransparent process. Now, to be fair, they have produced some more um, clear... Uh, workings now that people have been able to interrogate. But the point I'm making is, in 2019, when the May government passed the 2050 net zero target into law as a legally binding commitment, they did it based on these back-of-a-napkin kind of calculations that Treasury officials hadn't interrogated. And certainly the 
the parliamentarians, MPs, who, who voted on it did so without any scrutiny at all. Now, you're a trained lawyer. You're a very sort of forensic, analytical person. You've been looking at this 50 billion number, which has become the kind of accepted wisdom, even though the Treasury's initial estimates were up at 70 billion, as you've just said. And you think this 50 billion number is really quite a big underestimate, don't you? Well, I am quite persuaded by the arguments that the, the figure is, is not particularly plausible. Um, and I should also say that is um, a net figure because they think that there will be certain benefits from uh, the, the, the net zero objective. So well. we'll spend a lot more than 50 billion, but we might get some economic benefits that would offset. So the, exactly. the figure you're left with is 50 billion a year. The, cost. Gross, the gross cost is actually higher than that. And when you consider that, you know, for example, some specialist bodies think even just the cost of retrofitting people's homes with insulation and getting rid of gas boilers, which is a huge source now of carbon emissions, even that is going to be a trillion odd. You know, you were left thinking, where on earth um, did, did, the, did the committee get their figures from? And I think a lot of it has been something of a triumph of, of hope over evidence. Just fill in our viewers what net zero actually means in terms of practicalities. What are the government's stated intentions in terms of helping the country to um, uh, get to net zero where our carbon emissions are all offset by carbon capture and, and other methodologies? What does it mean practically for households and firms across the country? Well, there's... A, there's going to be quite a lot of challenges here because while the UK has been very successful so far over the last few decades uh, in reducing our carbon emissions, we've largely done that by decarbonising electricity generation by phasing out coal, basically. And our emissions are down 30-40%. Our emissions are down. We now represent actually uh, less than 1% of global carbon emissions. But that does mean in some ways we've sort of picked the low-hanging fruit here of decarbonising energy supply. Now what's left is, is really the hard part, which is um, transport and home heating. And there we're talking about getting rid of petrol and diesel vehicles, replacing them with electric cars, and getting rid of gas central heating. You know, people's much beloved, trusty gas central heating that keeps us reliably warm and is really actually quite cost effective. There must be 20 million odd gas boilers in this country. Oh, yes, certainly. Or, you know, we, we have a very high level of connection to the gas network. It's, it's a very popular way of um, heating your home and also obviously cooking. People have, have gas uh, ovens and, and hobs as well. And there, I'm afraid to say the government is really quite stumped as what to, to do about this because it, there are lots of potential alternatives out there, such as hydrogen um, and um, what's called ground source heat pumps, which kind of do heat your home in a, in a, in a, in a way. They, hydrogen is, is rather uh, a difficult one because actually the production process for hydrogen is quite carbon intensive itself. It's electrolysis, isn't it? So it's, that's not foolproof yeah, from a, from a decarbonising. producing the hydrogen. Exactly. And then you've got ground source heat pumps, which are pretty effective from a, from a, a decarbonisation perspective, but they're really very expensive, thousands of pounds more expensive to 
uh, to purchase and then to actually run compared to a gas boiler. And unfortunately, on present technology, they just don't heat your home as well. And that might be all very well for you know young people who live in a, an apartment, perhaps prioritize climate change over staying warm at home. But for families and for older people and the infirm who, who need to be at home more and really rely on efficient, relatively low cost, affordable heat, then this is, uh, this is a real burden. To say nothing of the fact that, um, you know, just the infrastructure in your home to house a ground source heat pump is rather different to the, the, the really quite efficient way you can just have a, a gas boiler in a cupboard these days. So there, there'll be a lot of actually quite structural changes here. And I'm afraid that the way the government currently is thinking about approaching this and lots of uh, engineer, engineering organizations and groups are looking into this, there really isn't a clean market-friendly way of doing it where people will be allowed to slowly transition as they wish because the government has got this 2050 target now set in stone. You can't just introduce the technology and allow people to slowly adapt for themselves when it suits their budgets and their lifestyles to do so. We're really talking about quite authoritarian measures here to literally ban gas boilers, not just from new builds, but from people's homes per se, because they will just be cut off from the gas network. And the government will send engineers around to people's homes to tear up, potentially, I'm not saying this is a, a fixed plan, but it's easy to see how this might be the only way of doing it is to mandate it and have engineers call, tear out your gas boiler and replace it with, with this um, alternative technology. So it's really quite disruptive and costly to people's lives. Now, you very much accept the need to tackle carbon emissions and, and so on. But what you're really pointing out is the cost. And you think the government is being dishonest about the cost and the Climate Change Committee in particular is providing dishonest estimates. The heavy lifting now will be done transport and housing. So let's take each of those in turn, Victoria, if I may. On transport, electric cars, we know that the government by 2030 is going to ban petrol and diesel powered new cars, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not very long. No, Do you think electric cars can deliver uh, these uh, carbon uh, emission reductions? Do you think that they are economically feasible at the moment? I don't think they are, no. And I think um, this is another item where I think the Climate Change Committee uh, and other um, modelers have been rather optimistic in how they see the market working and the costs coming down. And, and also we have to remember that electric cars do still have to be powered by, you know, electricity. So we will need a whole lot more generation capacity in our grid and in our electricity supply in order to replace petrol with electricity. And I, I, I fear that our electricity generation um, and transmission infrastructure really isn't anywhere near being able to handle that as it stands at the moment. And then you have the actual effect on people's day-to-day -day lives, you know, whether it's families taking children to, to school or to school trips and, and after-school clubs where, you know, public with the best will in the world, public transport is just not viable for that kind of thing. Or whether you're talking about tradespeople going about their business, carers going about visiting people in their homes. Um, 
I'm not convinced at the moment that electric vehicles are financially viable for that, or in fact, structurally viable in terms of managing long journeys and uh, perhaps unexpected trips where you might just run out of power in your battery. And the batteries themselves require lots of lithium, lots of rare earth minerals, lots of copper. All these commodities are actually increasingly difficult to get hold of, aren't they? And increasingly right. expensive. And in fact, the carbon footprint of an electric vehicle is not as clean as people like to think because it has to be manufactured um, and it has to, at end of life, be disposed of. Its life cycle does still require energy to power it, which has to come from somewhere. And how about heating homes? This is another big area where ordinary folk will be impacted by the net zero agenda. Do you think the estimates that you've seen for the cost of replacing gas boilers in all British homes and putting them in all new heat pumps in all new build homes, do you think those estimates are credible? I think the work done here has been perhaps a bit more plausible. I think, um, you know, the construction industry and engineering firms have put a lot of work in. And uh, the problem is that the numbers they've come up with are a bit scary. And the government has not been as definitive in its plan for decarbonising home heating as one might otherwise have wished. And in particular, what we're always missing here is who is going to bear these costs? Because it's all very well coming up with a cost that you might even agree on as being about right, say a trillion pounds, I don't know. Um, who's going to carry this cost? Is it going to be individual families and consumers who will have to pay out of their own pockets for this? Most people would probably agree that that's unfair and regressive. So then the question is, well, does the government carry that cost? Or rather, I should say, taxpayers as a whole. And if so, how do you do this? Do you do it by subsidising the providers? Do you do it by paying grants to individual families to incentivise them to do the work? There's an awful lot of policy work there to be done. It doesn't seem to be progressing very well. Now, the Climate Change Committee came up with this £50 billion a year estimate between now and 2050. We think the Treasury's own estimate was a lot higher, £70 billion a year. The Treasury has been meaning to respond to that Climate Change Committee estimate for a long time, hasn't it? I know you follow this closely. How long is this delay now? And when? why do you think the Treasury is taking so long to say what it thinks about well, this the, number? The Treasury is due to produce a, a substantial climate change uh, report um, I think early next year. But you're right, there have been lots of reports due from the Treasury that have been delayed, obviously, because this is just very difficult. And I would certainly say I would rather, instead of rushing things out to suit arbitrary deadlines, that they took longer and produced higher quality work. I'm I'm kind of okay with that. How well that works when you have got the uh, 2050 legally binding deadline looming over you, though, is another question which I think also goes to the wisdom of having these kinds of legally binding targets at all. I think it just goes to the the general problem that I have with all of this, which is that there is so little scrutiny and accountability about these decisions that have been made in the case of the 2050 target. It was passed into law by way of a statutory instrument rather than a proper act of parliament. Um, There was very little scrutiny of what it meant. The Climate Change Committee, when it recommended net zero, said very blithely that they thought this target was was feasible and manageable. 
And yet, only a year later, when they were reviewing the situation, were criticizing the government because they didn't have any policies in place in order to, to facilitate reaching this target. Well, only 12 months ago, you said it was all perfectly feasible. And yet, it seems that ministers, MPs, and, and others hadn't really thought through the full impact of, of what they were signing us up to. Now, you're from the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, broadly, I think it's fair to say, a centre-right think tank. To what extent do you think this is going to cause anguish and ructions from other parts of the political spectrum, across, across the red wall, if, if you like, traditional Labour voters that might have switched to the Tories at the last general election? Do you think ordinary voters know that this is coming? I think the salience of climate policy is certainly growing, and you would expect that because it's a, it's a very high-profile media issue, and especially with the um, so-called COP conference, Conference of the Parties, that the UK is hosting this year. It's, it's a, it's a high-profile issue. And I think while people have generally been conscious over the past years of um, energy bills creeping up, I'm not sure people had quite made that connection with the Climate Change Act 2008 and the UK's binding carbon targets. It's, it's worth now, pointing out, isn't it, Victoria? One reason energy bills have been creeping up is because ordinary people are subsidising renewable energy, right? That's not a contentious thing to say. That is what's that's, happening. That's certainly the case. I mean, you can argue about how much of an impact that's had on bills compared to other factors like, you know, global oil prices, etc. But there is absolutely no doubt that a, a significant proportion of energy bills does go towards subsidising uh, renewable energies. There may be a very good case for that. You know, it, we do need to invest in renewable energy and technologies. Um, but I think now that we are talking about taking people's cars away from them, making people's holidays more expensive, the, the, the government's been rather um, defensive about this, but taxing food, um, you know, to, to reflect the um, ag agricultural contributions to greenhouse gases um, and, and obviously home heating. These are all necessities, food, transport, People heating. People are going to start I mean, noticing this in very No one can avoid paying for those things. The interesting thing here is I think there is going to be a real divide between voters who are going to notice this, consumers, families, are going to notice the costs that they are bearing. Whereas politically, all established parties are on side with this agenda. Now, they may well have disagreements about the best way to achieve net zero and um, exactly where the costs should fall between yeah. individuals and the taxpayer. But nobody has really questioned the, the need for this commitment to, uh, to net zero 2050. From a free market perspective, which is you know the perspective that I take, an arbitrary target of 2050 is in many ways counterproductive to producing the innovations and technologies that we need, because you end up with government trying to plan out everything and direct uh, businesses and scientists and entrepreneurs as to to what to do, rather than facilitating a free market solution through you know, an open exchange of ideas, which could never be achieved when you have this um, legally binding 
commitment plucked out of the air, really. 2050 is just a round number, isn't it? The climate doesn't know what year it is. Um, and, and for sure, it should be a priority. But I'm not sure that sticking this uh, particular year on it has been helpful, really, in terms of free market solutions. I've been up in the northeast recently where plans are afoot to build a huge wind farm factory. We're building the biggest wind offshore wind farm in the world on Dogger Bank, as you know, in conjunction with the Norwegian uh, uh, government. Could we be like the, the Saudi Arabia of wind? You've looked at these figures closely. Do you think renewables, wind, solar, wave power can replace fossil fuels entirely? I will caveat this by saying I'm not a scientist or an engineer or even an economist. As, as you say, I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I have looked at these things quite closely and I do find some of the claims about the gains in efficiency of um, renewable energy sources like wind power to be rather suspicious and rather convenient for the agenda of the activists, frankly, who, who are pushing on the net zero agenda. And I fear that actually the way this has been delivered, the way they've been subsidised with things like contracts for differences, which um, basically protect investors in wind farms against fluctuations or, or energy reality. prices <laughs> against the realities yeah. of energy markets. At the end of the day, the taxpayer is going to be left on the hook under these some of these contracts if they don't work out as the investors had hoped. And of course, ultimately as well, energy bill payers. So it's true to say, isn't it, that the 50 billion number the, the, the relatively low nature of the 50 billion number is driven in part by assumptions about technological advances in renewables that you don't think are feasible. I mean, it's, it's a combination of feasibility of technological advances and the reality of um, energy markets and financial markets and how, how they've all been um, set up by governments, you know, in order to try and force these innovations in the direction that they wanted to the timescale that they wanted. Now, the UK, as we approach COP26, is responsible for about 1% of global carbon emissions. Our carbon emissions are down quite significantly. We can argue about the extent, but almost no one denies that they have reduced. I mean, is there any logic in what we're doing if so much of the rest of the world is not ever going to care what Boris Johnson says at COP26. I mean, the Chinese are laughing at us, aren't they? So this, is, uh, this has been such an interesting um, feature of the work that I've done that I find extremely illuminating. Um, I've got a, a research paper coming up looking into the work of the Climate Change Committee. And when you realise that, um, you know, the UK is only responsible for this circa 1% now, of global carbon emissions. Um, you wonder why we are putting ourselves through this rather than perhaps focusing more of our resources and energies on adaptation measures to build flood defenses and infrastructure and perhaps you know, work out ways of allowing people to insure against their risks from, from, from climate change. Because frankly, no matter if we do reach net zero in this country or not, that alone is not going to make any difference whatsoever to the climate. Now, the argument that the Climate Change Committee and the government make is that the UK needs to show 
global leadership and exert our influence on the world stage, set a good example. Off the back of ordinary households who have their boilers ripped out. And persuade China and India to essentially sacrifice their own economic growth, which I think ethically is, is quite a problematic thing, actually, to ask poor countries to make those kinds of sacrifices just as they are starting to industrialize and improve the quality of life of their people. We want them to, to make some of the same sort of investments and, and sacrifices that we are making. The risk, though, to me is that in the UK, we will make all of these investments and incur all of these costs and all of these disruptions. We may or may not hit net zero in 2050, but unless we somehow miraculously bring the rest of the world along with us, um, we will have incurred all of the costs and seen none of the benefits. Meanwhile, we've wasted all of these years that we could have been investing in adaptation measures. And I feel like that's been a real failure by the, the Climate Change Committee and others who've supposed, who have been supposedly providing expert advice to the government all of these years. You accept the need to tackle carbon emissions. You don't hold any credence to the Climate Change Committee's estimates of the cost. You think the cost is hugely underestimated by them. So what would you do? What do you think we should be focusing on in order to tackle uh, the need to lower carbon emissions? Well, I would certainly um, not hold any legally binding arbitrary targets in place. And I would certainly spend a lot more energy looking at adaptation measures as a, as a risk mitigation measure for the, the reality of the situation that the UK is, is in, in global terms. And then I would, you know, really focus on allowing the uh, innovative dynamic forces of a free market to, to really produce the kinds of technologies that will allow us to transform the way we uh, generate and use energy. Dare I also say nuclear energy is always the sort of, um, the spectre at the feast. As I understand it, nuclear groups, representatives of the nuclear industry were not even allowed to attend the COP conference, which to me seems quite shocking. Even though some environmentalists do now accept that nuclear has a role to play in tackling climate they, change, yes, right? Yes, they do, which is which is great. Um, and, you know, it's again, it's not straightforward. There are lots of uh, risks and costs associated with nuclear energy. But in terms of the way that we can preserve our quality of life and prosperity, then I would have thought uh, we should be looking much more closely at how we can do better on nuclear energy than we are now. Victoria Houston, thanks a lot for joining me on Money Talks. Pleasure. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Please do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show on the money at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.